saying this, we sang this. And it just caught me. That you, that you, my king, did it catch you? Did it catch you? We just run over stuff like that. I do. God forgive me. I run over things like that. My king would die for me. A king. A king died for us if we're believers, if we're Christians today. A king. Think of that. You can't get within 10,000 miles of the Queen of England, hardly. Royalty, they just put barriers for you to get to them. A king. A king died for all who are in Christ. Now to the text. Now to the text this morning. Now to speaking to some of you, the graduates, but I hope to all of us this morning. We just read that text, so set aside my thought about the king, if you can, for a minute, and go back to the text. There in that text, it says, don't let believers despise you as youth. Set an example, youth, so that the believers will not despise you. So the inference of the text is that that it is possible for for youth to be despised. And and what Paul is writing here in this text is how do we keep that from happening? How is you as youth, as graduates? How do you keep from adults or elders from despising you? The older I get... um, the more I see the tension that often develops between youth and eldership. Not, not eldership and church leadership, but just elders. Age spans. Generations. As I look back on that, I recognize that I contributed to some of that when I was more youthful. I still feel youthful, but realize I'm not seen as youthful. One of my definitions of adulthood is you can make less forgivable mistakes. And by that I mean that God, not that God doesn't forgive them, but as you get older, you're supposed to do it better. You know, people are less forgiving in your old age as they were in your youth of missteps. But I contributed to that in my youthfulness. I contributed at times to cause elders to to want to despise me because of my own arrogance at times, thinking I knew better. There's a tension I see in uh, in life in that regard. I think I think we'd all see it. There's a tension that develops. That that there's a tendency in in our more youthful times to think we know it all. We all were there. If you're an if you're an elder today, you know what I'm talking about. That they're not doing it right. They're doing it wrong. And when I get a chance, I'm going to let my influence be known in how they're doing it wrong. 
There's something about youth that does that. There's something about youth that is idealistic in that regard. It's not all wrong, but, but the danger of that is it's, it's really part of, of where my worldview takes me that that happens. Because the heart of man is sinful. And part of the reason you think they can do it better and everybody else is doing it wrong is because of their own sin, their own pride, their own arrogance. I was the same. But it is also because, this is part of my worldview as well, it's part of, is because that no generation does it perfectly right. My generation didn't do it perfectly right. And so there's a sense in which young people, because of arrogance, can be guilty of, of thinking they're going to fix everything, but they also can justly see things that are wrong in another generation who thinks they're doing it all right and aren't. You see, that's a worldview thing, that, that there's no perfection in this life, and so no generation does it perfectly, and all of us deal with arrogance, no matter what generation we're in. And so there's just a built-in tension between youth and elders, wherever that division might lie. Now, the result is that that elders begin to despise youth because of that. Because of that built-in kind of problem, there can be a danger that youth get despised by elders. And again, Paul says, let them not despise you. Uh, It happens in lots of ways. I think it happens because elders get threatened. Older people get threatened by youthfulness. They see their strength going and they see others coming on with strength and there's a threatening kind of thing that can happen as you get older. You just get threatened about a generation you say, I don't understand, or however you want to say it. Um, They can despise it because they're just being threatened. They can also despise it because they see a tinge of arrogance in it and they forget that they were once arrogant as well in some of those regards possibly. Let let me give you some illustrations of this and, and then I want to talk about what to do so that it doesn't happen. But I, I think one illustration, my generation, my, my parents' generation would be one generation ahead of me. I, I'm a baby boomer of that era. But my parents' generation were what some have called the greatest generation, World War II era people who grew up in great, many of them with their, with their feet in the Great Depression and in early years, and that was my father's case. He, he experienced the Depression as a child. He was in World War II, all of that generation. But a lot of that generation, these are, these are generalizations, certainly, but one of the things that generation is known for is to just kind of hold their emotions within, not be very expressive about, about emotions and even saying, I love you, those kinds of things sometimes are awkwardly performed or were awkwardly formed by that generation. Not, not to, in totality, but in many ways. That would be kind of how you saw that generation. They just were more staid. And so along comes the baby boomers, and, and in a reaction to that, which was probably too far for that generation, they come into this kind of touchy-feely stuff. The therapeutic generation. That's my generation. Therapeutic. You know, they, they're doing it all wrong and they got it wrong and so we swing a pendulum over to the other side and it's all about feelings. It's all about taking our own temperature, how we feel, everything gets run through us, how you're feeling. And you see that, you see that? There's, a, there's a genuine wrong. In arrogance, we overreact. Uh, another 
way in a generalization that that can happen, I think, is in my generation now to the, to, to the generation behind me. The baby boomers to the generation behind me. They're, I see this happening as I look on youth today, as I look on young people today in the, in the church world. That's the world I live in much of the time, so in the church world. Um, much of, I think, the excesses of the baby boomer generation was we, we came into the, to the flow out of the World War II and the economy started to be pumping. We were born in that era and all of a sudden going out and, and making your way and financial ways and all of that kind of thing, just baby boomers got caught up in that. Going to make money. Gonna, again, a generalization, but the opportunities were there and much of that kind of led to excesses in many ways. I mean, we wanted to make sure that our children didn't experience the deprivation that we might have. So we overreact in some ways. And then along comes the generations behind now who are talking about things like the poor and social justice and things like that. Now those are good, good, good corrections, good, but be careful. Be careful because in those corrections is always a bit of arrogance with truth. Be careful about the arrogance. Be careful about the fact that they've done it all wrong, we're going to do it all right. Realizing the danger that one day generations down as we go on, we'll look back on your generation and find your excesses. You see how that works? There's just tensions like that. I see it, I see it sometimes in the church world. Again, where I work, where I live, where I, where I move, and the peers in which I relate with. Um, in, in the areas of, of how church is done today. There's, there's many places which I'm grateful we don't have that luxury here. We do not have that luxury at Richland, and I'm grateful for that. But I see segregation entering into the church world. Not segregation by color of skin or nationality, but segregation by age, by preferences in stylistic ways of worship. And there are many places that have multiple service and they have a service for this, for this style and this style and this style and, and what they really have divisions of is this age and this age and this age, this generation and this generation and this generation. I'm grateful we don't have that liberty here because I'm sinful just like everybody else. But we're forced here to do it together. Grateful for not having that temptation. But again, it's that whole idea that we know better and everybody that's gone ahead of us is doing it wrong. And, and if you're not careful, into that then comes this whole idea of that, that generation beginning to despise a younger generation. So what's the answer to that? What's the answer? What's the solution? Well, one solution would be that you go out and you interview that generation. You say, I don't want them to despise me, so I'll just do what they want me to do. I'll just conform to their idea of the way it should be completely. I will, if you will, um, see their way as supreme and do it. Well, that's not what Paul says here. That is not what he is saying here when he says to these particular to Timothy, who was a young man, a young pastor, when he says to him, let no one despise your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, 
in love and faith and in purity. He doesn't say go out and interview them and let their ways be supreme. I think what he's saying is don't be arrogant, but realize as well that they're not doing it all right and seek God's standards. Seek His way. And the result of that is is what you want. And so what I want to talk about today to you for just a few minutes, and then we're going to pray over you and give you some gifts, and then we're going to eat together, and really say to all of us, is, is how do we do that? How do we do what it says? Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. How do we do that? There's a hint of the answer down in verse 16, and then I'm going to take you to two other texts. Verse 16, it says, Keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. I would put it in reverse order. I would say, keep a close watch on your teaching and therefore yourself, which I think is what he means. What we think, what our mind has, controls what we do. So, so be careful about your teaching. Careful the foundation of that. Build the right foundation there so that those things become what your life emulates. And so young people this morning and all of us here today, I want to spend just a little bit of time to, to, to talk about three things, really. Three admonitions that I would give to you so that your youth won't be despised and you will set an example. First of all, this. Get the gospel right. Get the teaching right. Get what this book is all about correct. We say often, this is one, one story. This is one progressive story. Not 66 different author stories that have different themes, but one theme, one thread, all the way through that has its culmination in the coming of God among us in the person and in the face of Jesus Christ. One story about the gospel. Get that story right. That's what it has to be built on. That's the foundation of not being despised and setting an example. Turn to another text now. I told you there's two other texts I want to look at. I want to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. This text, and then one other, and then we'll go this day. Okay, getting the gospel right. And in this text here that I'm going to read, it's familiar to many of us, but it is about the gospel and about the gospel being about seeing something. In fact, our, our existence statement flows out of this text here that you see on the wall. Let me read it to you. Paul is writing, he says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to temper tamper with God's word, but by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds. You see the idea of sight there, blinded? The minds are blinded. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light 
of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God said, it was for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's what this book is about. The glory of God in the face of Christ. And I say to you, get that story right. And getting that story correct is about seeing. Is about having your veiled eyes unveiled to see. Now, what is it they don't see? What is it that, that they're not fully getting in focus? Is it the gospel? Yes, but, but maybe they're getting part of it. I mean, it's, it's potentially possible that the one who is blinding our eyes will give us part of it. And I think does to countless numbers of people, gives part of it. I doubt that anyone came into this room today Anybody came in this room today not having ever heard the word Jesus Christ. None of you did. You've all heard that word. Now, there are, there are some who are blinded even to that. Their faith is so veiled, they've never heard that name ever before. But you've heard that. And you've probably heard of his coming, his incarnation, God becoming man at Christmas time. You've heard of his, his uh, life somewhat, of his death, of his burial, of his resurrection. Easter. You know what Christmas is. You know what Easter is. So to that degree, there are people who know that, and yet, and yet there's still a qualifier in this text. It says they're blinded, the eyes of unbelievers and there's a qualifier in there look at the qualifier it says if our gospel is veiled in verse 3 it is veiled to those who are perishing in their case the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel it doesn't stop there what I just said, there, there are millions upon millions of people who, who get all of that. Now, there are some, granted, who've never heard the name of Christ, who Christmas and Easter would be foreign concepts to them. But there are many who are, are still missing the second part of that. Though they aren't fully blinded, there's still a veil. And this is the qualifier. It says, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of Christ. Are you looking at the text? That's not what it says. It says this, of the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That's a huge difference. It is a huge difference. What does it mean what does glory mean? Just a 
term we throw around. What does it mean? It means the significance. It means the worth. It means the beauty, if you will. It means the treasure of Christ. You see, there are people who who understand Christmas and Easter. And, and the enemy of their soul will let them have those holidays. As long as they don't see the glory of Christ, the beauty of Christ, the treasure that Christ is. That's the real defining point in this text. Because a little later, look at what it says at the end. It says, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory. Again, that word, beauty of God, the beauty of God, the significance of God, the treasure that God is in the face of Christ. We see it there. So the question I stopped this morning I stop and say, do you see? Do you see the glory of the gospel of Christ? Do words like significance and worth and beauty and treasure resonate with you? Maybe you haven't heard them before about that, but they resonate with you. Maybe you have other terms that are synonymous with that, other synonyms. But you get it. That resonates in your heart. I say to you this morning, the, the foundation of not being despised and doing all of those things that it says in that text in Timothy is that, seeing the glory of Christ. And then as we as we see that, as we... As we stop and see that, there, um, there's something else that starts to happen. As you see it, and it, it's kind of like when you taste something that's really good. I mean, I can name things to you today. I can just name something and you can taste it in your mouth. I mean, I can name Almond Joy candy bars and I just taste it in my mouth. I taste it. That's what happens next after you see the glory of Christ. You start to savor it. You've tasted it. You've seen it. And so you savor tasting it again and again and again and again. That's what savoring is about. That's what the Christian life is about. That's what the walk of faith is about. You, you've come to see how glorious and how valuable and what a treasury is. And so you continue to want to taste and feed on that and let it savor your soul and strengthen your soul. I, I just want to stop here. I made a note just to say stop here. It speaks specifically to graduates. What you need to do, graduates, as you leave here, we know there's lots of you. This is this is a, a foundational time. You will you will be you will be going a different direction. Most of you, some of you will stay here, 
But many of you won't. You'll go other places. And at least for short terms, you'll go other places. Maybe come back. But what I say to you is, go someplace spiritually. Find a body of believers that that magnifies the worth and the beauty of Christ to you week after week and in your relationships with those people because that's, that's how savoring happens. That's, that's the means, the magnifying of Christ, lifting Him up to, to, to try to display how beautiful He is is really the work of of those who do ministry. In every ministry of our church, that's, that's the, the goal, to, to make Christ look as He is. Not to make Him look better than He is, but just to somehow get out of the way enough and lift Him up so that people will see His beauty and His worth and the treasure that He is. That He's a King who died for them. That's part of the... That's part of savoring. What I did this morning, that's part of savoring. That we sang about a king who died for us. He's a king. We lift him up as a king. You, you see? Go play. Find, a, find some place that does that. Because you won't savor what isn't lifted up. But that's the way it should be. You, you come to see it and... Savor it. Savor it. And then, and then, savoring leads us back to 1 Timothy 4. As we savor, then, then it changes our speech and it changes our conduct and it changes the way we love people and it changes our faith and it changes our purity. It, it's just the outgrowth of what you're focusing on when you're focusing on those things. On purity. Absolute purity is your king. One who did it perfectly and was without sin. You see, as you, it's what you look at causes you then to be transformed into those things. You see why it's foundational to see and to savor? Because it's transforming. Now, is that just an equation I made up? Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Just just a chapter before what we just read. Listen to what the Bible says. Verse 18. And we, with unveiled face... You see, remember back across the page there in your Bible? He has veiled the eyes of unbelievers... He's veiled them, okay? The definition of, of a believer is the veil has been lifted. So here he's saying, and we all, believers, with unveiled faces who've come to see the beauty and worth and glory and treasure that Christ is, beholding the glory, savoring the glory, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. You can't say, I can't editorialize that any more plainly. We, with unveiled faces, now see, and we keep looking, 
We keep looking. We savor it. So that we are transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. You see? You see how God designed a way for youth not to be despised? A way for youth to to set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. It comes from seeing something and savoring it so that your life begins to declare it. It's just been in its presence in such a way that it just radiates it. Now there's more to declaring than just radiating. You need to tell them why you're radiating. You need to tell them the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But along with that, you talk in ways that that is a treasure of your life. And people see it. So this morning, that's what I say to you, graduates. That's what I say. Let not the next generation despise you. But set them an example in all of those arenas. But do it by pursuing the one to whom this book points. Jesus Christ. And pursue it until it's more than just about His coming and His life and His death, burial, and resurrection. But it's more than just knowing that in your head. But you begin to see the treasure of it in your heart. It's a treasure to you. Again, I ask, does that resonate in your soul? I hope it does. I hope it does. And, and this is my last word to you. Once in a while you come across something that just is kind of a soundbite that helps you. And last few weeks I came across an illustration about having a pebble in your shoe. Think about that. Last time you had a pebble in your shoe. You just had a pebble in your shoe. What, does that, what, what happens when you have a pebble in your shoe? That's about the only thing you can think about. Or, or at least you can't get completely away from it. it just keeps, you just keep thinking about it. Pebble in your shoe. Until you get it out. You just keep, it's just a constant reminder. Constant poking in your shoe. Young people, my admonition to you this morning is be a pebble in the shoe generations ahead of you. Just be a pebble. Not, not, a, not an irritant. Not an arrogant irritant. I'm not talking about that. But just be a pebble. When they, when they look at you, when they look at you, their head just kind of cocks a little inside. That person, that person has something at the core of them that makes it different. It, it, I can't get away from it. I can't, it, it just, it's like a pebble in a shoe. You, you cause them to think, that doesn't naturally happen because naturally what happens is the younger generation and the older generation are a dissonance often. And that person's different. That's my admonition. Set them an example. 
Set the world an example. Be a pebble in the shoe of the world as you go out. And may that pebble be that the motivation of your heart is you you have found a treasure. You have found a treasure in your life. Worship team is going to lead us into our next segment this morning. And that segment is we, we're going to ask that all of our graduates this morning come to the front. If you're on that list, that you would come this morning. Let me, let me make a couple of statements here before I go forward. There's a couple on there that are ill this morning that just couldn't, couldn't be here this morning. Um, uh, Sarah Lee and Hart could not be here, and, uh, and so she couldn't be here at all. But, um, but also, um, Christy Dauberpool is here, and her daughter could not be here this morning. She Christy came without her daughter. She's sick at home, but came to represent her this morning. So, so we're grateful, Christy, that you've been able to come and some of your family with you. And sorry they, the rest couldn't. But with those exceptions, my daughter is away today at a, at a shower she couldn't had to have. She's getting married in a shower in the city. She couldn't rearrange the time frame. And there are others that may be gone this morning for other reasons. But those that are here, we'd like you to come and and just kneel at the altar. Kneel as close as you can together so everybody can kneel here, hopefully at both sides of the altar. And, and after you've come, then we'd like for your, uh, if you have parents here, for them to come, or, or maybe somebody you've asked to come, or maybe somebody just like to come and, and stand behind you um, and, and be with you today here. Uh, we're, going to, we're going to present you with some gifts that we want you to have, Bibles for our high school graduates and other gifts for, for those who are on... Um, graduate from other places after high school. But we just want to give those gifts. We want to share our love to you in that way. But more importantly, we want to just pray over you. And so Pastor Dan is going to conclude this time together praying for our graduates this morning as you come. So as as we stand here, begin to sing, graduates, you come first, and then those who want to come with you, just come in behind you. Let's stand together. God of highest self, occupy my lowly heart, own it all and reign supreme, conquer every rebel power, let no voice or sin remain that resists your holy have loved and purchased me, make me yours forevermore. I was blinded by my sin, had no ears to hear your voice, did not know your love within had no taste for heaven's joys. Then your Spirit gave me life, opened up your word to me. Through the gospel of your Son, 
gave me endless hope and peace. Help me now to live a life that's dependent on your grace. Keep my heart and guard my soul from the evils that I face. You are worthy to be praised with my every thought and deed. Oh, great God of highest heaven. Glorify your name through me. Let's bow and, and pray for these graduates here. Father, we, we thank you that you have made known your son to many here. Father, many that are that are, are kneeling here in families and, and represented here in the congregation. God, we are not deserving or worthy that you would redeem us, offer a way to redeem us, but you have. You provided your son as a sacrifice for our sin, that Christ Jesus, who is, who is the, the creator and king of the universe, has died for us. God, to demonstrate your love and your grace and your glory. Father, I, I do ask for each, each graduate here and each of us as well, God, that you would remove any, any veil that, that is there that is preventing an individual from seeing the glory of who Christ is, understanding not only in their head but receiving in their heart the glory of Christ in the good news of the gospel. Father, so I pray that you would open spiritual eyes and, and create life. Even this morning, if, if never before, that this morning would be the day that they can look back to as, as knowing that their, their eyes have been opened to, to see the treasure that Christ is. And then, Father, as these go, go out, move on to the next uh, phase in life, God, that you would put in them a desire, a, a will that cannot be shaken to pursue what is needed to help them to continue to see Christ. God, put in them a resolve to, to pursue placing in their lives other believers, a, a congregation, a body of believers who will lift up Christ before their eyes over and over and over again week after week, day after day, year after year, so that they uh, then in turn, God, would be able to grow and be changed. So, Father, I pray that this resolve would be what you put in them. Once they've come to see Christ, they would have uh, your, your spirit working in them to resolve, to pursue that in their life. And then, Father, I pray that just as you promised you will, for anyone that has come to Christ, 
the work that you have begun, you will finish. And so, Father, I pray that you would bring each one, each graduate here to the place that they see Christ and be transformed and changed by beholding his glory. Father, I pray that you would bring about dramatic transformation for the world to see as they declare the glory of Christ, the glory of God in the face of Christ, that the world would see the transformation that you are doing. And all of this, God, to your glory, the work that you do in each graduate and through each graduate to bring glory to your name. Father, that is our hope. Father, our hope is that our lives would be lived by your grace and for your glory. And so we, we leave these graduates in your hands and we pray these things in Jesus' name.